I want us to go back to a place that I said I was going to take us like I think three weeks ago now, something like that. Um, I am on a series. I just do it once a month instead of every Sunday. <laughs> Actually, I, I'm trying to model this series after um, British television where they give you this very short segment and then they quit for like a year when they go and record the other segment. It's like Dalton Abbey, just about the time you're really ready to go, that's the end of the season. Victoria, I mean, they quit for the season with Prince Albert on the floor. I mean, it's like, I got to wait till all the way next year to find out what's going to happen with the prince. I'm trying not to hurt you that bad, but I begin this series sometimes I begin to feel like that's the way I'm doing it. The last time we spoke, uh, I talked about the Ugaric writings and that this is a uh, writings that were discovered in 1928 and there's, there's about 1,400 tablets, I think it is, that were found um, in this discovery and these tablets are some of the oldest uh, written language tablets in that air in the near eastern part of the world and they range between the 1500s to the 1200s BC. Um, so why, and we talked a little bit about why that was important and I kind of really ran through that quickly. I don't know if I want to use the whiteboard today or not. Um, do you find that helpful or do you just, by the end of this, does it just look like I scribbled all over a whiteboard by the time I'm done? I mean, just kind of... You, th you think that's helpful? <laughs> okay. I will use the whiteboard then. It has to go over here so they can catch it on the camera. Perfect, perfect. Elijah's already practicing for going to Kenya. <laughs> Ugarit is a city. When I use, maybe I should use the, we'll use the term village because sometimes in our culture, if I say city, you think New York. Ugarit was not New York. Um, it was, so it was a, it was a village. It's an actual place, and uh, it's at the northern end of of Israel. So it's in Syria. No, it's in Lebanon, and. Um, um, kind of along the coast. It was one of the early coastal cities. The dwellers of Ugarit were uh, pioneered a lot of sea travel. They were really versed in commerce. So it was also, when you look at, when you look at the Near East, when cities became prominent, they were part of the trade route. So just like today, if you can get commerce to come through your town, your town will grow from being a small town to a major city if you can get commerce there. It was the same then. The commerce wasn't tractor trailers. It was camel caravans that moved goods all the way from Asia all the way down into Africa. So Israel always had a place of being um, 
one of the primary routes that people were passing through to get from um, the Asia area into Africa. You, were, you traveled down the coastline, and so um, Israel, over its history, there were various towns, villages that became really important because of the trade route. At this point, Ugaric was really important because it had a seaport and it had a place where vessels could actually come in and unload, and so it was, its commerce was the sea. So it's a literal, actual place. And we talked about the fact that in the Ugaric writings, um, if, if, you're, if you're geeky like me, then the writings are really interesting. If you're not, they're like really boring. Um, because it talks about who was trading with who, who owed this, who paid that, who married this one. Why? It just gives you, it's the life of the town of Ugaric, but in it, there is also writings about their belief systems. And so when we were looking at that, we, we saw last time that they had a, a god that they called El, which was their um, supreme god. There was a second god, Baal, who was a, um, was kind of like, I guess we could call him the co-captain with El. I'll use that term, co-captain. And then there was what was called the Malachan. which were, um, we, would re- we would have referred to that as angels. And there was the sons of El, which were his counsel. So all this came out of what has been discovered in the Ugaric writings as they've been interpreted. The, the other thing that's interesting, why these writings are important, is because the, the language of the Ugaric writings is Semitic, which is the same as Hebrew writings. And the style of the writing is what's referred to as uh, cuneiform, which is the, the, the way that the Symbols are made for letters. They did a lot with arrows. So um, let me see if I can think of how one would go. So they would, you you might have a slash. Um... And these aren't actual. I'm just kind of making this up to give you a feel for it. But you might, you know, there might be, and that symbol, that's, that's considered a, a cuneiform type of symbol. And it, what that is there could be, in our language, the word word. 
an interesting thing in English, or at least for me, I'm so used to English because it's the only language I've ever learned to speak poorly. Um, you, you begin to think that like when you see W-O-R-D, that makes a lot of sense. We understand it. We, there's a W, there's an O, there's an R, there's a D. And of course, anybody that was going to have a language, these would be the symbols that you would use. Except these are just symbols. They're just marks on a page. If I lived in Ugaric, they would look at that and go, what in the world? Why wouldn't you say it like this? That makes much more sense. I mean, obviously, you can see W-O-R-D. Why would you say it that way? So we have to put our my, reason why I'm saying all of this is that I'm hoping we can get our minds back into what it was like as an ancient when I'm looking at scripture, when I'm looking at how the world is structured, when I'm looking at, at uh, images of God, what were they all looking at? Because our biggest problem is we take this, the Bible, every bit of it, from Genesis to Revelation, we take it and we interpolate it in 2020 language, understanding, symbols, thoughts, feelings, except it wasn't written in 2020. It wasn't written by people in 2020, not even in people in 2000, not even in people in 1900. And you get my point. And so all of us, when we go to the scriptures and, and we all try, I think, if we're going to honestly be students of the scripture, we try our best to move beyond it. All of us are going to read scripture and we're going to bring ourselves into it. It's just, it's just what we do. I'm going to, I'm, you know, but I have to, I want to work hard when I'm reading scripture to let scripture speak to me instead of me speaking to scripture. I want scripture to tell me who it is and what it's telling me instead of me telling this is who it is and this is what I think it should say. If I, if I go to the scriptures in that second category, I, I'm never going to arrive at what I consider truth. I'm just arriving at my opinion or the opinion of those that I get together with that have all the same opinion. And since there's four of us in the room with the same opinion, we agree that our opinion is right and yours is wrong. Because there's four of us. There's only one of you. And if you talk too loud, we'll kill you. So in the Ugaric writings, again, somewhere, the, the, this is written in um, probably around 1300 BC. So if I lived in the village of Ugaric, the city of Ugaric, and I got up every day and I, and I worked at the seaport and I was part of the fabric of that town, what I, how I would have thought about God was that there's a supreme God, and he's above all the other gods. And then there's a co-captain that works with him whose name is Baal. And Baal does a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff that El has delegated to him to do. 
And El also has this group of sons, which is his council. And so El talks with his sons, and this council comes up with decrees, and those decrees are now taken by the Malachim and made manifest on the earth. So there is an unseen realm, and there's a seen realm, and the two work together, and then what comes out of that, something happens on the earth. You all okay so far? Okay. I'm just, this, is just, this is just a review. I'm about ready to muddy the waters again. I just want to make sure we're, we're okay there. Okay. So that, that's where... That's where we're going to start. So in this scenario, again, taking from these writings, Baal has a palace and El has a palace. So we've talked about that on this divine council, there's three levels. There's El, there's Baal, and there's the sons of El. Those are the... Those are the ones that hand out the decrees. And again, from the Ugaric writings, the Council of El met on a mountain or a lush garden. Maybe I should put that up here. Angie, I know. But you got my name right. <laughs> now I can't hear anybody. So, um, so where the Council of El meet, it's a lush garden. It's also a place where there's two rivers. It's also a mountain. And it's, this, these are all descriptions of the same place. So what, what do we see? We see that this place where El lives, so it's a mountain, it's a lush garden, it's also a place of abundant water fed by two rivers, and a divine council meets there in the remote heights of the north. The location of this is actually called Jabal Aqua. Aqua, I think that's how you say it. Um, and that's a literal place. It's right on the Syrian-Turkey border. It's actually, it, it's been under excavation and only got stopped in this last conflict that happened because Turkey is consider, considers it a military area and won't let the archaeologists in. But they've been actually excavating this mount now for a while, and they've excavated it down through the Hellenistic period. So from 1500 B.C., all the way through the Greek period, this mount 
was considered first the palace of Baal, and sacrifices were offered there, and all the ritual of Baal was practiced there. And under the Greeks, it was considered the palace of Zeus and was considered the uh, Olympus of the Near East. So this is a literal place. We could all get on the plane today, if Turkey would let us, we could all get on the plane today and fly over there and actually walk on the place that, that, that's written about in the Ugaric writings, but it's also written about in the scriptures. And in the scriptures, it's referred to as Mount Zaphon. which for me is fabulous because the Bible is not made up stories. It's not a fairy tale that just got written out over time and somehow those of us that want to read the Bible are just captivated by a fairy tale and this stuff doesn't have any real relevance to anything. No, it's actually literal places and the Bible talked about it. And so we, we have where the scriptures are being written and they're talking about these very things. So what I want us to kind of look at today um, is Ugaric writings. We have a lush garden that's a, a mountain. We have rivers flowing through it. We have this picture painted of where El lives. Well, does that at all seem familiar to any place else? that was written around the same time. Uh, yeah. So we have Eden. And when we get to Eden, When we get to Eden, again, why I think this is important to where we are and, and kind of why maybe I've looped back in this story is because Eden is more than just the story of a man and a woman messing up. That's not really the main theme of Genesis 1 through chapters 1 through 3. It's giving us a whole different picture of all that was going on in the heart of Yahweh when he created. So we also know that we have, um, this is the, the home of Yahweh. So this Eden is the place where Yahweh Elohim dwells. Well, how do we know that he dwelt there? It was the place that he was walking, you know, they, after the fall, what happens? It says that he's walking through the garden in the cool of the day, and he calls out for Adam, he calls out for Eve, calls out to humanity, and he says, where are you? And they've hidden themselves. But it was always God's intention to walk with his creation, man, humanity, to bring dominion to the planet. Now, the dominion that he was bringing, and we've talked about this a little bit before, the idea of dominion is not me exercising control over anybody. 
The, the, the purpose of dominion, if I'm going to be an imager of God, dominion is actually something that liberates because as Brandy pointed out with what she read earlier, we're called to go in and, and bring the presence of God into a place where it's not. That's really dominion. So if, if I walk into a hospital room and pray for somebody and they're healed, I've just taken dominion of the situation and I've released, as an imager of God, I've released the presence of God into the situation. That doesn't, uh, in a sense, that doesn't do anything for me. I'm just called to be an imager. I don't walk in and go, well, if you want to get out of that hospital bed, just write me a check for 500. I'll lay hands on you. You'll get up, you'll be out of here in five minutes. I'll even sign your release form. No, I go in and I pray. They get healed. And then they explain to the doctor why they're healed. And I move on because my assignment my place of dominion was just to release God. That was it. Or if I sit, go in and sit at a coffee shop and strike up a conversation with somebody and by the time, you know, we now had four cups of coffee and we're all talking very fast, they're going, I want to know this God that you're talking about. And I get the privilege of praying with them, of talking with them, of helping them come into a relationship with the Lord. Well, at the end, I pay my bill and I go my way because I did my assignment. I imaged God in that situation and now I move on to my next assignment. So in dominion, it's, it's never about me getting all that me can get. It's about me being the image of the one who created me and then trying to release that image to be the imager of him in whoever I encounter, whatever it is. And of course, the image of God is love. So I'm going to release that, hopefully, every place I go in whatever capacity I can. So in the scriptures, if, 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 if you've come with me to where I am at this point of Genesis 1, 26, let us make man in our image, in the likeness of God, he created them. If you accept my premise that that's not a scripture about the Trinity, but it's actually a scripture that's referring to El, Elohim, and his counsel, and I'm not going to go back today to, to recover that, but we've looked at those scriptures that bring that out. So in Eden, we have Elohim, and then we have the counsel, which are called the sons of God. And I should make sure I do this so that my writing doesn't create something else. Not talking about the son, I'm talking about sons. So the council, so we have God, we have the council, we also have angels. 
the Genesis account introduces us to angels and some of the assignments that they had. Pardon? Uh, we're looking at, for this piece, is Genesis 1, 26 and 27, the support verses for this council being the sons of God. Um, I can give you those, um, but they're, they're taken from other scriptures that refer back to this. A lot of it out of Job, out of uh, Psalms 82, um, and I'm not sure of the other ones. I mean, I am sure of them. I just don't have them on top of my head. I'm not making this up as I go, I promise. It's interesting that we see that this place of Eden, it's a mountain, and that, that's going to, we're going to, in weeks ahead, we're going to look at why that's important. It's a lush garden. That's important because we, you're going to see this reappear through the Old Testament over and over and over again, even coming into the New Testament. Because we have, we have several, well, I'm, I'm jumping in. I won't do it. Stop. Stop. The other two things that we see that start to, to, we have Eden, which is the original, but we also have the, we have the tent of meeting that shows up later in, in Scripture. And ultimately, we have the tabernacle. And each of these two are types of Eden. It's all going back to Eden. It's all going back to the fact that what, what Yahweh started, his original intent, he's never changed his mind. He's still doing it. And when, when Moses had the, at the tent of meeting, the presence of God came. What, what, what did we see happen when we look through the Genesis account of the tent of meeting? When the pillar of fire was there, when the cloud was there, everybody knew the council is in session. Why? Because what came out? Decrees came out. Moses received something. So we have those two. The other thing that we have, and I won't write it up here, we have... Um, uh, we have Mount Sinai. We have Mount Zion, which is also Jerusalem, which is considered the, the, the place where God and his council meets. And of course, in a, in, a, in a little bit different area, but still the same, we have the Mount of Transfiguration. So the high place has been important all the way through Scripture. And when you can start to see that the high place is, is for, if I'm an ancient, what I understand is a garden that's lush, that's where God lives. Because where I live is not lush, it's not a garden. Only the gods can live in these places. Man, we just, we can't get there. It's, it's you know, only gods can live there. So, and, and you see this through, like, I don't care what civilization you look at, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's some exceptions, but generally speaking, what, what, it, what have civilizations done as they've moved forward? They have picked certain places that were in their geographic location 
and they've looked at those as places where God dwelt. And those were always the places that were hard to impossible for man to get there. So God would dwell there because if man can get there, then that's just a mortal place. If I can climb that, that's just a mortal place. So we have Eden, and we have what's taking place in Eden. We have the council of the sons of God. We have angels, the tent of meeting that comes out later, and then ultimately the tabernacle, which, again, when we read through scriptures and you find that God takes issue with high places that are the places of Baal, that are the places of Ashereth, that are the places of other, other gods that get referenced, that God has an issue with that. Yahweh has an issue with that. Why? Because they, they're usurping something that doesn't belong to them. Okay, we all okay at this point? Yes. In Isaiah 14, 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount Assembly in the far reaches of the north. The other thing about Mount Zion, it's the city of the north. Remember, we used to sing that chorus, is Mount Zion city on the north? The north was, was another, played a very predominant place in Scripture. So when we look at uh, Isaiah 14, and really, if you, I just put this one verse in, but all of 14, it's talking about um, the king of Tyre and how the king of Tyre has set himself against God and raised himself up. And so God is saying to him, you, and the king of Tyre is not Satan. It's not Satan. And also, in some of your translations, the word Lucifer appears in this scripture. Lucifer is not Satan. Never in scripture is Satan called Lucifer or Lucifer called Satan. And depending on your translation, the word Lucifer doesn't even appear in the Bible at all. It was put in later by good old King James, the infallible 1611 translation. But it's, it's not even in the original text. It's talking about the king of Tyre, who was a literal king who did exactly what Isaiah said he was doing. Don't, don't fantasize it into something else. God was having an issue with the king of Tyre, and he told him exactly why he was having an issue with him. He told him exactly the problem he had got himself into by elevating his heart and saying, I will be a God. He had enough problems without calling him Satan. But in Isaiah, it talks about, it's, Isaiah is using language that takes us back to this place of the garden. I will ascend to the heaven above the stars of God. Stars of God is referring to entities, not celestial bodies. Again, when it, when it talks about stars throughout the Old Testament, it's um, not always, but almost always, it's referencing uh, divine entities, not the universe, not planets and stars and so forth. 
I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Isaiah is using the same language of Mount Zion. It's the city on the north in the far reaches of the north. The king of Tyre is saying, I have elevated myself and I'm saying I'm equal to Yahweh because all that I've accomplished. And when you read through towards the end of the 14th chapter of Isaiah, God says, you say you're a man, you say you're a God, but I say when the kings of the earth come and surround you and take all from you, will you call yourself a God then? Because you're, you're a man and you're going to die like a man. I don't, I don't want to get into today, so I'm not going to touch it. But I don't want to get into, and so please just ride with me for a while because we will get to it. But when we start, when we're looking at scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, and, it's, and we get to these places where God is having a major issue with people. And when God has a major issue with people, and they don't turn, it usually doesn't end well. God's nature hasn't changed and he wasn't different then than he is now. And we're going to look at who he really is, but I don't think we can actually get there until we get through this. Because otherwise, I think we're going to make an assumption about some things that our assumptions may be correct, but we don't know why we got there. I want us to know why we get to wherever we're going. And then you can decide whether you want that path or you want something else. I'm, um, we, don't, we don't require absolute agreement here. All we qu- require is civil listening and discourse. <laughs> which is why here should be different than there. Ezekiel 28, 14, and then we're gonna, I'm going to land this plane this morning, I promise. Ezekiel 28, 14. You were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. So again, not, not focusing on the, the cherub part of it, but on the mountain of God. You know, whether we're talking about Sinai or Zion, the mountain of God is in effect his temple. So the language of the mountain of God is going to be throughout Scripture. And we're going to, we're going to run into that now um, quite often. And now that you can see it, you're going to run into it on your own. Have you ever noticed how once you see something, it starts appearing all over the place? And you go, but I've read that Scripture a hundred times. And all of a sudden you're going, what the heck? That word wasn't there last time. I know it wasn't there. Daggone passion translation, it changes everything. <laughs> okay. So what, what are all the implications of this? Why is this important? And we'll get this plane down. So the ancient Hebrews would have thought of Eden as the dwelling place of God. When they read, when they read the Genesis story of the garden, 
They're not seeing it as a place that God is off there and he just kind of shows up in the cool of the day and then disappears again until the day gets cool again. No, it was God's dwelling place. That's how they would have seen it. That was their mindset. It would, they would have seen it as the place where he and his counsel would have directed the affairs of humanity. Humanity. The scriptures, I'm jumping down a little bit if you're following those notes. The scripture tell us that Yahweh did not create this place for his own domain, but, be, but, he, create, but he desired to live among his people. Genesis 3.8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. When you read the, the, when you read the, the gods of the Ugaric writing, they're gods, so everything is about them. Everything comes to them, everything is under control of them, and anything that interferes with them is subject to being destroyed. Yahweh, in the Hebrew writings, the difference is Yahweh didn't create something just for himself. He created something to be in a relational experience with that which he created. So God wasn't satisfied to be on the remote mountain that no man can get to and is untouchable and is unreachable, but somehow the decrees of God work their way into the life of man. Instead, Yahweh created all that he created, so he actually walked with humanity. He actually walked with them in the cool of the day. His whole purpose then and now and forever is that that which he's created, he wants to dwell in the midst of us. He's not a God that he's removed. Scripture says he's not a God that's not touched by our own passions, our own things, but he's a God that has actually come near. We see he ultimately came near in the Son, in Jesus the Christ. He came near taking on flesh without sin so that in all ways he knows what it's like. I can't walk into a situation that God's going, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, because you're on your own there. I can't walk into that situation. I can't create that situation. I can't will that situation. Yahweh desires a kingdom rule on this new creation called earth that he shares with shares his rule with humanity. Since the divine council is where Yahweh dwells in the unseen realm, the two families, the, the unseen realm, the divine council, and the seen realm, humanity, it's God's plan that we work together. And as I talked about before, that can sound really odd, and yet most of us in our language talk about angels. We kind of don't have a problem with that. You know, some of us in this room see angels. I haven't seen one. I, I think several have tripped me from time to time. <laughs> but I haven't actually seen one. The rest of you see them all the time, to which still leaves me a little envious. I'm, I repent. I've had some sozos about that. <laughs> but I'm glad that you do. So, but we, we talk about that, and we don't really seem to have much problem if we shift and say, but there's also a divine counsel which God speaks with, somehow that becomes a little harder. Like, I don't know about that. That's just, that's just weird. But we talk about seraphim, cherubim, 
We talk about angels at the tomb. We talk about Gabriel coming. We talk about angels in Revelation. We talk about angels showing up and getting the guys out of prison. We talk about all that and go, yeah, well, well, of course. Of course. Because that fits my flannel graph. This divine council mess. Well, I don't know for me if it's all unseen. I know for some of you, it's not so unseen. For me, it's all unseen. So it's not that big of a stretch for me. I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. <laughs> so yeah, Yahweh, there is the two families, the seen and the unseen, and we're supposed to function together. Most of us would agree and have said in, multi, in various ways that we understand that the unseen realm has an impact on the seen realm. And sometimes the unseen realm is doing things we're not even aware of, but we become the recipients of the benefit of it. I don't know how many times an angel that's been assigned to me has got me out of a dire strait. I just walked through like it was another day and never even realized that a short shift of something could have been really a mess. So I don't even know how many times my life has either been spared or something has changed because of divine influence. And even though I've never seen an angel, I, multiple times in my life, I have been in places where the presence of something besides me was so real, so thick, and somehow I knew it wasn't just God. And that's about all I can explain about that. couple final verses. In Genesis 1, or John 1, Gospel of John 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. John 1, or 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given in us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. We're children of God. Well, I have children, and I have sons and daughters. So sons, small s, if we're children, we're sons. And I'm not going to lay out all that scripture, but Jesus references that himself. Again, going back to Ezekiel 28, verse 2, Uh, Do I want to do that? Okay, I guess I will. Ezekiel 28, verse 2. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas. Again, keep in mind seas. He's not talking about in the heart of the water. I'm in the heart of 
the, the Elohim of the unseen. Yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. So Ezekiel is referencing the seed of the gods, the Elohim. The verse speaks of a governing authority. It speaks of it uh, as a place like a county seat, a place where things are decreed from. And the problem with the king of Tyre is that he's placed himself in the same position as man in the garden. I'm going to elevate myself. I'm going to consider myself something that I'm not. And I'm going to define God a way that he hasn't defined himself, which is always a key, a key for us. So Ezekiel draws attention to Eden as a place of authority and action. The imagers are not to raise their hearts in pride, but to be the releasers of God's glory in the seen realm. We are to be the instruments, the agents, the imagers between the unseen and the seen realms so that Yahweh's will is done on the earth as it is, is in heaven. The plan was for the unseen and the seen to work in harmony until the glory, his glory fills the whole earth. We, that, I mean, that's what we've been called to do. That's, that's who we are. We're the imagers of God. Is that I don't lift my heart up in pride. I don't start to own these things that God has given me. Instead, as an imager, I'm giving them away. I want to see God raised up. You know, I've said this before, and it's such a good example for me, for me personally over the years. When you read revival accounts, you read about the Moravians. The Moravians managed to keep a, a hundred-year prayer group going, most of the time on the estate of um, Ludwig, Ludwig van Zinzeldorf, German, and they lived there, and they prayed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There was prayer that went on continually for around 100 years. It's amazing. And you think, here's this group of people that made this, this profound statement on the earth for 100 years, and most of the time when they're referenced, it just says the Moravians. Their names are lost to history, but their names are not lost to the one that's most important. You know, and we can do all that we do and we can celebrate all that we celebrate and, and we do amazing things. It's my desire that when somebody encounters me, you, or us, that at the end of the day, they can't remember my name. And I practice doing that on a lot of you. <laughs> they can't remember my name, but they remember their encounter with God. And they leave changed. Because that's really what we're called to do. I mean, I just want to be an imager. I, wanna, I want people to see Jesus. I want us as a community, that that's what we do. We do it, we do it well. And we do it so well that the people are so captivated by what just happened to them that they turn around and go, who was that masked man? As we just ride into the sunset. <laughs> the Lone Ranger! And <laughs> uh, Yeah. I, uh, I, and on this, I'll t because 
Sue made me do it. Um, on this, I'll, I'll end with this thought. So the Lone Ranger and Tonto were riding through this valley. And there's big bluffs all the way around. And at a certain point, they look, and there's a lot of Indians lying in, lying in the ridge. And the Lone Ranger looks at Tonto, and he says, Tonto, my friend, looks like we're in a really tough spot. And Tonto said, what do you mean, we, Kimosabi? <laughs> if you need prayer after that, uh, the ministry team would love to come and brush off anything I just put on you.